I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thorough Talk. I'm Thorough Bailey, and I'm excited about today's guest because uh, I really love this guy. I get a chance to work with him when we do have work. Um, broadcasting the Utah Jazz basketball game. He's the voice of the Utah Jazz and also the creator of the Locked On Podcast Network. One of the top, one of the most listened to and downloaded uh, podcasts in the country. Locked On Jazz named number one of the top five sports podcasts by Stitcher and named NBA must follow by Sports Illustrated. And there's no question uh, that David Locke is one of the best in the business. He wouldn't tell you that, but I'm going to tell you. David, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for the nice intro, Thurl. I will buy lunch next time. <laughs> no, I think I owe you, man, because, you know, when we're on the road and, and you invite me to breakfast and lunch, we have to fight over the check, and, and I let you win most of the time. But uh, I don't know if that. I don't think that's actually true. You're pretty generous. I I just would be really I just be really excited to go back on the road and uh, have a breakfast with you. I hear you. Well, let's 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 dig into that first, man, because um, you know this thorough talk is really about about the journey, and we're going to get into some of your journey too, how you got to where you are, maybe in the second half of this. But you know, a lot of things going on, current event wise that I want to touch on and ask you about. And first of all, I want to ask you about you and your family just continuing to get through this this uh, COVID, this pandemic. How's it going for you? I think it's fine. I think it's hard on them. I'm around all the time. I mean, honestly, like every family has their... <laughs> I feel you. Oh, I'm serious. Like they have, every family has their dynamic. And our dynamic is that for nine months of the year, I'm kind of in and out. And... Um, you know, one of the, and then what I usually do just in, during the season is I try to participate in anything I can involving the kids after when they're done with school. So if they have an event or dinner or around the house, and then usually around, you know, when they're done, they start at nine o'clock, I'll go into my office to start prepping for the game. I always, right. I've, I always kind of feel like 10 o'clock at night, 930 at night is the moment where the next game starts. And so I start to prep. And, you know, sometimes that's a lot, sometimes that's not. And, um, that's kind of the system. Well, during COVID, like, you know, nine o'clock would come and everyone's around. Like I've been just around all day now, right. And they've been around all day. And I actually kind of figured out that actually I had to start going back into my office, partially for me, cause I was raised an only child and I needed my own space and partially <laughs> for them. Like that there was actually a pattern to how they lived without me. Um, and that is so true. back into that, that pattern was actually the best thing I could do for them. It wasn't that I didn't want to be involved. It was just that they needed their space. I was screwing it up. Um, so I, as time went on, we kind of tried to generally get back into that pattern, um, that, that we've always, that we have as a family. And I, I, we've been, you know, we're really fortunate, um, you know, as most people have finances are a little different, but yeah. we're pretty fortunate. And, um, my son, um, is going, was a senior in high school. So that's a bummer. 
um, but he was considering taking an extra year to ski train this off this next year. So he, you know, the decision to not go to college was an easy one. He won't go next year. Wait. And my daughter's a golfer, so we just have been doing that. She's um, her favorite thing in life is a summer camp that she goes to up in the San Juan Islands, and that was canceled. That was pretty horrific. Uh, I went there as a kid too, and it was kind of the savior of my life, and um, it's kind of what's been the key to all my success. So I think I cried more than she did because <laughs> I envisioned what would have happened to me if I hadn't had that first summer of my life. Um, but other than those little setbacks, I think we're fine. I mean, we've been good. Um, I've lost a buttload of weight, though. You have it's been great. Oh yeah. Have, like wait a minute. Pounds. You weren't like, come on. You weren't thick. To start with, thick. bro. But not not eating at eleven thirty at night on planes and yeah. eating a cookie when we get to the hotel at two and eating fancy nice restaurants with my dinner partners. Okay, um, going to breakfast with me. I got you. Yeah, like all those things <laughs> and getting. You know, the other one I always have said is that if I didn't have so much work, I'd work out all the time. Like I've always said, like. Well, I know. Listen, I know you're a Peloton freak, dude. So I know you've been on that thing every day, maybe twice a day. Well, I've actually proven that to be true. That if I had a little more time, I would actually work out one or two times a day. So I've proven like (laughs) that whole. I used to always say that, and people, you know, everyone's like, "Yeah, whatever." Just commit to it. I'm like, I don't really have time. And I've always said, if I had time, I'd work out more. Well, I've done yoga every single morning (laughs) since COVID, and I've. uh, and I've gotten some other workouts in too, so it's good. Well, let's go we're, back we're a little bit. Uh, I'm glad to hear yeah. that, man. I'm and I miss seeing you, and I and I know that uh, I'll at some level uh, get to see you here real soon as the NBA kicks back up. But I want to jump back in the time machine in the not so distant past uh, when you and I were on the road with the Jazz uh, when the dominoes really began to fall. Then when Rudy. Rudy Gobert uh, tested positive for the coronavirus. And, of course, we were at that game, and I know we've talked about it a lot on your show and mine and others. Um, but as as we got past that, D, um, and, and, and you're, you're usually pretty good about predicting things. I know a lot of times you use analytics, but um, did you think that the NBA would somehow have some semblance of a season as, as we're about to see? here pretty soon yeah, i did um you know the talk of the day of was that they were going to either play without fans or take a few week hiatus right so i don't think we quite realized the magnitude of what was about to happen um but i did think uh that they would get games in i think this plan uh, maybe I'm giving them too much credit. I think there's many layers to what they're doing in Orlando right now that have massive implications for the future. Right. And I think they're doing it intentionally. And the key to me of why I, I knew they would play um, in some manner, because they couldn't, the most important season is the next one, 21-22. This one's already shot in a lot of ways, right? It's right. just going to be different. They couldn't afford to get to December 15th without more data of what works and what doesn't. Gotcha. And that's what they're acquiring right now. If it doesn't work, there'll be media people, oh, what a failure. And duh, duh. No, exactly opposite. If the, the fact that they're at this point where they are today with everyone in the bubble mm-hmm. is a, means that this, this is a massive success because every day we're learning something. And that's the key to being able to have a successful twenty one or 2021 season. Even with the numbers spiking again in Florida, I know you've kept up on that, uh, and probably worse than any anywhere in the country 
if I'm not mistaken. Um, wait, wait, I heard their governor mocking the media about yeah. how inaccurate they were about everything, and that oh, so that he was wrong. Oh, okay. Um, um, you know, I actually think that if they can pull this off in Florida with all the numbers spiking, it's even more yeah, of a data I point, agree. right? Like, I think um, you know they're tr- they think they've created a bubble, but it is they're calling it a campus, but. You know, so the the thing that's infiltrating the bubble is the citizens of Florida who, you know, are getting positive rates at a pretty alarming rate right now. Um, though there were some funky data. There's some funky data going out in Florida. I don't, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I'm I'm not sure. You know, okay, David. Florida's not one of the places I trust. Everything that I comes out of. I hear you. But but let, let's get real too. I mean, we're we're talking about three hundred something NBA players on the campus, in the bubble, however you want to call it. Um, how can they screw it up, D? Well, I mean, the players screw it up because they want someone to come in to visit them right. from the outside. Um, and they do it in an unauthorized manner. And that's how they screw it up. Um, you know, the other way they screw it up, but with the amount of testing they're doing, this shouldn't be too big a screw-up, is that they just lose all social distancing and all mask rules, and it turns out that one of the people doing that has the virus. So, you know, if you're watching the college stuff that's going on, it feels like, you know, they're getting together as groups outside of practice, and then they're spreading it, right? Right. And so that's the that's the concern. You know, 18 guys go get in somebody's room together because they want to hang out and watch a movie and they don't have their masks and they don't socially distance and they're breaking the rules because you're not supposed to go into other people's rooms. And then one or two of the people in that room has it and spreads it. And then all of a sudden you got an outbreak. That's, that's the trick. So the key is to make sure that they're doing that gathering in some more public, you know, some place where they still are together, socially distanced with their masks on and, and interacting and still getting the enjoyment of the interaction and the privacy of the interaction that you'd get in your, in the room setting. But I don't know how they're going to do that. So what is the point, the point where, okay, you know, one or two guys get it, or three guys, I know there's a protocol protocol for that, but what is the point where realistically the NBA has to say, oh man, this, this may not have been a good idea. I don't know the answer to this, and they've been very nondescript, right? So if one or two guys get it, you just treat it like a sprained ankle. They're out for 10 days right. or 14 or whatever it is. Um, you know, the MLS just canceled a game, right? Mm-hmm. Or just had team had a team leave. Like, well, maybe that's the model. Like, you know what? If your team was irresponsible and spread it amongst themselves, then you get home and you lose. I don't know. I have no idea what the, what the answer is here. Uh, the Orlando Pride of the women's, you know, right. all went out and didn't make it. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like, and are we going to get into a game where suddenly the NBA has to prove that that team was irresponsible in some capacity? Um, obviously, if Giannis or LeBron gets it or Kawhi and it suddenly changes the outcome of the finals, that's that's too bad. But on the same level, a few years ago, Zaza Pachulia put his foot underneath Kawhi Leonard's ankle and changed the out- may have changed right. the outcome of a playoff series. So that's not uncommon. Right. So let's talk about the impact on other sports. I mean, with football. I mean, on the news, we're talking about conference-only sports. Uh, are, are we seeing the last of really sports of, of how we knew it before the virus? I mean, does does this change the face of sports in general? I mean, there's so many angles on this, T. I don't, like, I mean, the big one, right, that all gets back to is do we get a vaccine and then are Americans smart enough to actually use it? Right. 
right? Like, so that's the huge issue. I mean, we have just, we have a cultural problem. If, if some of the studies are true that people aren't going to take it, well, okay, then like, what are we going to do? Um, I mean, I think what's fascinating that's taking place right now is that if you run through all of the sports, they're all doing it in a different manner. So to my data, of course, it comes back to that. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, if you think about it, right, so the NBA is a pure bubble. Major League Baseball's no fans, no bubble. They're going home and they're traveling. So that's pretty out there, right? Um, soccer's in, in their version of a bubble. PGA Tour is no fans, somewhat of a bubble. They're actually being pretty strict, but they're going home in between tournaments and might go home for two or three weeks at a time and then coming back in with lots of testing. So that's interesting. NFL seems to be, I think the NFL is actually going to be fine. I think the NFL, the players are going to get it. And also the fact that I kind of have a vibe that if you get it, you can get cut because it's the NFL and they're ruthless. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so the NFL is going to be kind of in their own model. Um, I just think it's really interesting to watch. So we're going to, we have these different kind of models of freedom and movement. And, yeah. and, and then the next step of it is putting 25% of the fans back in. And I think that's going to happen here. And I, um, particularly outdoor stadiums in the NFL, I think we'll see 25% of the crowd. And I'm, I'm sure that a bunch of teams will disagree with me. Um, but I actually suspect that over time, the ticket revenue will get stunningly close to their 100% capacity. Really? Uh, I, I think that it's going to be like, you know, whether it's seat licensing or country club-esque, or um, I think having a ticket to a game, if we're 25% capacity, will become such a, a desirable item that unless we have a significant economic crash, which could happen, you know, when all the PP loans are done and all the unemployment in July and August could be ugly or August and September could be ugly. Um, if that doesn't happen and the 1% still has the resources that they have right now, I think having tickets to a sporting event will become the new country club and the new most exclusive thing you can have. And so if you're a company and you were paying $5,000 for your seats, but now you have to pay 15 for the same seats, but the only way your employee ever gets to a game is through you and it's a perk or one of your clients gets to go to a game is through you and it's a perk. Well, maybe that extra, you know, five to 15 is suddenly worth it. Right. And by the time the teams are done, they're actually at 80% of their revenue model that they were. Now there's some problems with it. Like you're going to move some lower bowl people, to the upper bowl and then the NFL, what are you going to do? Are you going to tell season ticket holders that they become odd game season ticket holders and the other would become even game season ticket holders and it's the same price i actually think they might do that i that's my my guess in the nfl is your ticket price is just going to be doubled right and you're gonna and maybe even tripled and you're just gonna only get four games okay so the last part of this delaga is us right i mean we're used to being in the moment we're used to being close to the team even broadcasting now is is going to be different right uh so talk to me about one how you feel about that and and will it will it make it different obviously for for us not being right there in the in the mix of everything oh i think this what we're doing now we i understand it um it'll make a tremendous difference i think it's a totally different broadcast um i have a lot of thoughts on it. i probably should keep myself <laughs> um i hear you brother um uh, I, I hope over time that the people that run broadcasting that have 
in almost all cases, this is the unique part of our business is that very few people who run broadcasting have ever broadcast. Right. Um, I, I hope those people respect our craft um, and don't just see us as a vehicle to run commercials. I, I agree. I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's going to be – it has to be different, right? I mean, it, if you're not you – know, we're, we're used to being part of the game in a sense and, and part of the excitement. Now, for the pre-half and post on away games, right, I mean, I, I kind of get that. Things shouldn't change that much, but it's the atmosphere. I was watching the, the TBT, ESPN, the other day and um, watching – how they handled their handled their kind of uh, bubble, if you will, with the with the. I don't know if you've watched it all, but the the black curtains are down, so they never show the the fans, the the broadcasters. They show uh, in split screen. Uh, there's a lot of cheering off the bench, and that's you know it. it and, and there's a lot of blank moments too, where that person's pushing that button, right, for every curse yeah. curse word that comes out. Yep. So it's going to be uh, very, very interesting. What, a, what? How do you think the? F- I think the the crazy, the craziest one for me, Thurl, and the the one that I'm trying to wrap my head around is I think our, you know the Jazz will play the first game. Mm-hmm. Might be the most listened to broadcast I ever do in my whole life. Might be the most viewed TV broadcast you ever do in your whole life. Yes. Right? The curiosity level is going to be through the roof. And the irony is that the curiosity level is going to be what is it like in the bubble. And we're not, and we're going to have to tell the story yes. of relaying to the listener and the viewer their curiosity, the bubble, without being in the bubble. In the bubble. To me, this is like the most difficult task I've ever had in my career, and I have lost sleep over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see it, man. I get it. Um, and you already hit on what I want to talk about next. Of course, we we both have. We watched the Jazz at the beginning of the season start to come into their own before all this happened. Um, and by all accounts and reports, it, it it looks and seems like guys have come in in pretty good shape. Um, what do you what do you noticing about the Jazz? Well, I'm noticing a little bit of a there's a little bit of a almost a cockiness to them about what good a shape they. I think they think they're ahead. I think they 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 have some. There's some, I feel like they think that they're further ahead than the rest of the league. It might not turn out to be true, and that's a great belief to have. Actually, frankly, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. But I get the vibe just listening to Jordan Clarkson and listening to Joe and listening to Donovan and even Dennis and Justin that they they really feel that the guys that come together. It turns out Jordan and some of the guys were playing an awful lot of basketball in Los Angeles together. It sounds like from Jordan. Right. Um, you know, uh, frankly, you know, if if it turns out you can't get it twice, our stars are are clear, um, and so I I feel like they feel as though there's that they have a little bit of a bounce to them right now that they think is advantageous. Um, the other one I think is really interesting is just kind of the different reports from teams. So the Jazz are playing seemingly a lot of five on five, and other teams haven't played any five on five yet. Um, so it does seem as though they. I think they're the. I think they're actually doing an entire reboot of who they are as a team, um, with the evolution of Mike Conley and trying to get him comfortable, which didn't work very well early in the year. The injury to Boyan and the addition of Jordan Clarkson. Uh, I actually think they're just. Cha- I think Quinn's changing who they are as a team a little bit right now. I think they're going to try to play much quicker. They're going to be super small. 
Um, I think any of four players could bring the ball up the floor. Um, I'm not convinced Rudy's going to be trailing in the pick and roll like he's always been. I think there's going to be a little bit more of putting Rudy down almost Rockets-esque with Clint Capella down at the baseline and letting guys dribble and penetrate into the lane. And if the guy has to come help off Rudy, then it's dunk for Rudy. And that's a better way to get Rudy's dunks than off the pick and roll, the way defenses are playing. So I think there's going to be a reboot, a little bit of who they are as a team that was somewhat taking place during the season, but this stoppage gave Quinn the freedom to completely do it. I did hear Quinn say that he doesn't want to hold these guys back by too much structure. Um, But what do you get? One, what do you lose, obviously, with, with Boyan gone, but what do you gain in guys uh, like Mike Conley? So the one thing, I mean, you lose a lot because Boyan's tough as heck, right? So yeah. I think actually what you lose is a level of stability that he just brought this team. Like he just was never phased by anything that was going on, and he just, was, as we saw with two game winners, he was clutch. But I think if we went back throughout the year, this is not an analytical analysis, but it's just a gut. I have a feeling that when other teams are on 7-2 runs, he made a lot of shots, right? Don't you kind of feel that, yeah. Thurl, that yes. like he was the one who was unfazed and yep. he just made the play when things were going wrong? Um so I think you lose that. You lose one of the best shooters in the league. What's The one thing that will be interesting to me is offensively Joe's going to take that spot. The problem, the reason Joe's numbers were off this year is his shot distribution was completely out of whack. Right. So Joe's one of the best catch-and-shoot guys in the league, and he was getting no catch-and-shoots. He's one of the best corner-three guys in the league, and he was getting no corner-threes. So suddenly he's playing Boyan's role, and he's pop- popping in that corner, and he's there on the pick and roll and they come off that and that's where they're coming off to bring the third guy in to defend Rudy. Then Joe might be bearing four or five corner threes a game in, in a manner that we hadn't seen out of him. And, and if that's your replacement to Boyan, that's pretty good. There's, there's some other, you know, we're going to be an awful rebounding team. Um, we're going to be really small defensively and length, I think matters defensively. So I have a hard time believing we're going to be very good defensively though. Boyan was not a great defensive player. Um, I don't know. There's a, I mean, the biggest thing that's interesting to me, Thoreau, is I didn't realize this during the season, is the Jazz match Boyan and Rudy almost every minute. Right. Uh, I'm guessing to protect Boyan a little bit, also, though, for the offensive spacing. So it's hard to look in, at data and try to figure out what we might be like without Boyan because every minute Boyan played was with Rudy and every minute Boyan didn't play was virtually without Rudy. So it's a very difficult thing to look at. So does that change anything for Donovan as far as responsibility goes on, on the offensive end? Uh, my thing, my, if I had uh, a thought for Donovan, and I think this would be hard for him, so I don't know how Quinn can get this across to him. I think he needs to play off the ball more. Mm-hmm. If he's going to be a 30-point-a-game scorer, what he actually has to add is three catch-and-shoot threes a night. Um, And then he's got to go to the free-throw line more. And I think he's got a better chance of getting those catch-and-shoots if he's playing off of other people rather than creating himself. And I actually think he has a better chance of going to the free-throw line in the same circumstance. You've got to throw on top. You know this better than I do. But I think it's hard for him when he's coming. He's the guy coming off the pick-and-roll to draw that foul. But if we play... Conley gets in the lane, kicks to Donovan. Donovan's now penetrating in the lane, and people are rotating. I think he's got a better chance That's of drawing right. that foul. I agree. Uh, um, and the biggest thing about drawing the foul is I think he has to change where on the floor he's trying to draw the foul. I did, this is this was a COVID research project on my part. Um, <laughs> so th- there's a surprisingly few amount of fouls called at the rim. They're almost all called earlier in the paint non-restricted or even just a step out of the paint. 
So they're happening when the guy's driving to the right. basket, makes the contact on the defender, then goes up with the shot and gets the foul. But with the rise of verticality, particularly at six foot one, when Donovan goes up at the rim, he's actually trying to be elusive and work around people and doesn't draw fouls. If you look at where Brad- Bradley Beal had a huge spike, he went from four free throws a game to eight. It's because he's being fouled out before he gets to the rim outside on the perimeter. And I think you're better off doing that if you're getting the ball on a go and catch than if you're coming up to pick and roll yourself. Yeah. That makes sense, man. You made that clear because, you know, you broke it down for me right there. You broke it down for me. And you're well, here. usually I come to you with the data and then ask you what the heck it means. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but but we're, we're, on a, we're on a KSL podcast, so I have to say what the heck <laughs> what i said <laughs> that's why i love you right there man right there we'll take a quick break and come right back with david Locke. two years ago americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the kabul airport there's desperation and anguish more than eighty thousand afghans have since arrived in america But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hello, everybody. We're back. After a quick break, back to Thrill Talk, we've got David Locke on with us today, talking analytics, talking Utah Jazz, talking everything, talking the bubble. Um, but I want to know, listen, I, I kind of owe you an apology, David. Not kind of. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because no, I know no, you went, no, no, wait, let me, no, I do owe you an apology. And I'm going to tell you why. Because for years and years and years, when you get used to a guy like Hot Rod Hundley, Right, you get used to a guy who, you know, is one of the best that ever was in his profession, and and see, I, I didn't know you then, right? But and I know you got this in a lot of, uh, from a lot of people, maybe directly, maybe indirectly, maybe on your social media, um, because the first thing I thought was, you know, I, I don't know who this guy is, but he's not going to be hot rod, and. What I realized, David, is that you weren't even thinking about trying to replace a hot rod. You were honoring him. And you are very good at what you do. I mean, the enthusiasm you bring to the game um, is is unmatched. And, and I, I love listening to you. But I, I say the apology. I say it kind of tongue-in-cheekly. But in a way, I think that um, I want to get your thoughts on this, too, because you're coming in and you're – you know, your lifelong dream, I, I believe that would be one of your lifelong dreams, is to replace a guy who's legendary in the business. But what was that approach like for you? Let's talk about, take me in your time machine and, 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 and bring me to the point where, listen, you get this job, you know that you've got shoes to fill in a sense, or uh, you've got to honor this, this great broadcaster who has left a legacy with the Jazz. So I think a few things. So one, just so you can put it in perspective of my awe of Hot Rod, is that I somewhere between 1979 and 1982, we're not entirely sure because it was one of those moments that no one really remembers, um, 
we were driving the old Wasatch Boulevard, which was before the 215 existed, so this is how we start to narrow this down. And we were listening to the radio, and I said to my dad, I want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Or actually, I think I said, I'm going to be that guy. Um, and that was kind of the never-ending quest. Um, so there was, you know, my hero was Hara. Um, my hero in life were announcers. One of my favorite stories is in 1990, 1990. It was one of the first times I was ever in a locker room, and I was interviewing then two-time Cy Young Award winner Dave Stewart of the Oakland A's. And I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and Bill King was my favorite. I used to run around the house and pretend I was Bill King and scream, Holy Toledo, which was his call. <laughs> and Bill King started talking behind me. And I'm interviewing the two-time Cy Young Award winner, and I fully, like, drop my mic, turn around. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's Bill King. And, like, I'm freaking out that the announcer's there while I'm talking to the two-time Cy Young Award winner. Um, so that kind of tells you just perspective of where yes. who I was and what I wanted. Yes. Um, you know, I think to your point, like when people said, well, you're not hot rod, like I was like, yeah, like, of course, like there's no chance. Um, and I never, hot rod was great to me. I talked to hot rod, like when I, you know, and asked him like, well, what do you think? And you know, hot's like, it wasn't like, you weren't going to get this like long diatribe, right. deep philosophical Rene Descartes and, you know, like, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson out of him. <laughs> He's like, just be yourself. Um, just, just totally be yourself. Um, I had worked underneath as a statistician, um, of Kevin Calabro in Seattle, who's the best yes. announcer there is in the NBA. Um, so I, I think I came in appropriate awe of the position. Um, one, I, you know, working with Kevin had maybe caused me depression, not officially, but like just in the sense I used to leave every night going, I'll never be able to do that because I'll never be that good. Right. And then I suddenly realized he was the best there is. And so, okay, well, maybe you're not going to be you know, the best there is in his way, but how can you do it your own way? Um, so yeah, I mean, I just tried to be who I was and I am, um, I'm proud of what we've done with it. I think we've been really innovative and that I think is what maybe is my greatest strength is a willingness to fail, which leads to innovation and try things, some of which are good, some of which are bad. And, um, you know, I appreciate the the willingness of the organization to let me kind of just be me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it has, you know, I I didn't have social networking on for a long, long time, and um, I had to call my dad at one point and tell him, like, I found out my dad was like fighting with people on message boards because they were insulting his son, and I had to tell him to stop it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I definitely put myself in a cocoon for a few years because I knew it was being said about me, but I, I understood it. I didn't, I didn't actually have a problem with it. I didn't, it didn't, it didn't tear me up from a confidence standpoint, and I actually agreed with the fans. So that was what was hard. Actually, it was like, okay, yes, I'm not hot I'm not him. I got it. Um, the only other subtle, the only other subtle one that was really hard for me actually, and it was, this is, was my one thing that did get under my skin was when everybody would tell me I wasn't descriptive enough and they couldn't see the game and I'd go back and listen to every tape that would get me. And I finally figured it out and it was that Hot Rod had simulcasted for all those years. Right. So every phrase that Hot Rod used, somebody actually had a visual with it. And I was the first announcer in the history of the Utah Jazz who was using phrases that no one had a visual to. Right. Um, it took me a few years to figure that that's what was going on. Because I was like back to my tape. I'm like, I can't be more descriptive. Like, I'm, what is it they want? And um, <laughs> What do you want from me? Right. And I'm tearing myself up on that and listening and just... And then it just dawned on me, like, wait a second. He did a simulcast. So people would, like, watch it on television on Tuesday and listen to it on the radio on Thursday, and they had a total – like, that's a different game. I Like, 
so you you know you try to figure it out and i think i could be more descriptive at times there's there's an element where i could be better in that regard well it, it seems to me you know, as i'm with you and i'm i'm sitting over on across from you on the plane that you're always working on your craft I mean, how important is that to you? I see you, I mean, I see you calling the game. I hear you calling the game on the airplane. Right? Old games, right? Working on your craft. I mean, that's like, you know, going to the gym. Well, for, the first one on the airplane is I have the greatest broadcast partner in the world in Ron. Yes, you do. Right? Man. Like, I mean, Ron's 70-plus years old and texts me before. And his hearing's flight. going? Is that why he's great? Because his, his, his Yeah. Well, actually, no, he, his hearing's not going. You see him put the headphones on. That's right. Um, but this is true, by the way. Ron will, has been known to have headphones on sitting next to me, and I look over and realize they're not plugged into anything, um, which is the sign like, hey, David, stop talking. Um, oh, I love it. I'm tired of you. We're on the seventh day of a road trip. You need to shut up, <laughs> youngster. Um, so um, the, uh, you know, I... I like on the plane, Ron deserves all the credit in the world. Like I get a text from Ron or a conversation before we played the night before. Hey, what games do you want to watch on the plane? And usually we'll watch like if there was a like say the Bucks played the Seventy Sixers the night before in a marquee game and we didn't get to see it because we're calling a game. We'll usually watch that and then we'll watch the next opponent that the Jazz are playing and that's when we're calling games. We'll look at calling a game. I do always like the players do their shoot around and I always try to do my own shoot around. Um, but I I try to live by. I probably haven't done a good enough job of this during COVID. Um, but when I'm, we have young broadcasters that work with us in the broadcast system yes. program, which is probably my most proud thing I've done since I joined the Jazz, um, is building that program. And I always ask them, like, you know, what do you think? I, you know, I don't know why I use this example, but what do you think Ricky Rubio did all summer long? Like, well, he worked on a shot. So what did you do to get better? Right? Like, if you want to be an NBA announcer, that's being a pro. The pro players are doing something every single day to get better, right? Like you and I talk all the time. Your son is trying to be a pro, and he is at the gym every single day That's working right. on his craft, right? Yep, yep. So as an announcer, what are you doing every day? That can be a lot of things. It can be reading books. Um, one thing I did for a little while during COVID, and then I just lost the zest, honestly, was I was working on specific calls for a game. So if I would call a quarter of a game and just work on passes, so distribute shovels, transports, flings, yeah. you know, um, skips, you know, moves, whatever different vocabulary words so that you've used them a bunch of times and then you can just pull them off the top of your head. Um, so that was my way of trying to improve my craft. A lot of my, you know, I always try to improve my prep system. Um, so whatever it is that you're trying to get better at, you know, whatever the equivalent of footwork is and dribbling and handle and shooting, and we should be working every day as well. It's, it's hard. Well, it's amazing to watch it sometimes. You don't even know I'm looking sometimes. Or maybe you do. But it's 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 amazing to watch you and then to be able to listen to you live and 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 just feel that rhythm that you get during the course of the game, the excitement in the game and and so um it's been fun. You know what's man. so cool is I'm gonna send this podcast to my brother in law <laughs> and my who like saw you with what was it was it Christmas dinner? What was it Thanksgiving dinner? It was Thanksgiving. When I it was Thanksgiving dinner in Memphis, and I like did a little like live video of all yeah. sitting there back to my family's having Thanksgiving, and my brother in law was like, "That's so big!" I remember. That's so big! <laughs> like he freaked out. So you're saying all these nice things to me. I'm gonna send it, make him listen to this podcast, and then he'll think well of who buried his sister. Well, David, um, the other thing that I won't keep you too much longer, but uh, you know, you and I have this kind of. Uh, running 
and it's kind of a joke, but it kind of isn't. Like, you know, when you find some really bad analytics of a player. <laughs> <laughs> Do I need to finish this? You find some bad analytics. No. A player shoots over 20. Thurl Bailey was good enough. <laughs> this is the way to phrase this. Thurl Bailey was good enough yeah. that if he happened to, on one or two occasions, have missed his first 11 shots. One or two? That the, <laughs> that the coaches had enough confidence in him to continue to shoot. <laughs> Which means that when he then missed his next three or four and went one of 16, he's in the record books for worst shooting days. And we had Trey Burke on the roster for a while, and he kept bringing Thurl Bailey on. I don't mean to pick on Trey. Um, but we had a span there where we had some youngsters that didn't shoot very well, and so we'd have these nights that somebody was having a tough night, and I was like, oh, and I'd just find so, every single time. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, did my, I think did it, it had to be the one night. Did it just pop up, or were you actively searching under no, Thurl Bailey, 0 for no, 11? Actively searching. I was not actively searching. I was searching Utah Jazz, zero field goals, 10 or more attempts. One field goal. Oh, there's Thurl's name. Attempts. And Thurl's name would pop up. <laughs> but, like, you know, like Jose Ortiz doesn't in there. Not because he couldn't go one for 11, just because nobody would let him take 11 shots. So you got to take it as a compliment. Okay, How's all right. Old? How's that for an old jazz reference right there? Uh, I like that. Jose first Ortiz. Time. That's the first time Jose Ortiz has been mentioned in a jazz conversation <laughs> in 17 years. Oh, David, I love you, man. You're the best, and I'm looking forward to seeing you here real soon as we try to get back into the swing of things in a different I'll, way. I'll socially distantly peer across the, <laughs> the, the vacant arena at you. All right, brother. Thanks, David. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you, have, appreciate you being on the show, man. Thanks to David Locke. My pleasure. All right, buddy. Thanks to David Locke for being on the show. I can't wait to get back to work with him. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Thorough Talk. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.